Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Turn to the person beside you and say, you look amazing for as rough as you look. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The girls up front told me I look great. I love delusional friends. They're some of my favorite. This morning, there are a couple of things we're going to do. Let me take the the dominant one, and at the end, I'm going to do a little short thing. Let me just tell you where we're going to go. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about, and I'm going to spend the bulk of what we do this morning, is you realize Christ is redeeming every part of your life. There is nothing that sin takes, there's nothing that brokenness takes that Christ doesn't redeem and pull it back. We're going to talk about redeeming your friendships. We're going to talk about just friendship. After I've talked about that a little bit, at the end, I'm going to circle back where we started, and I want to talk just a little bit about dating. And here's what I'm going to tell you at the end. Some of you are going to sleep through the rest of this, so I better tell you now. <laughs> there are five seasons, not really checklists, not really things to do, but there are five seasons you have to go to before you get married. And we're going to talk about those five seasons. Americans skip two of them. Westerners skip two. And so we're going to talk about that at the end. And so as you think about your long-term relationship, there's, there's five seasons I want you to hang on to. But let's jump in on this one. There's a price to be paid for whatever culture you're in. Every culture has its besetting weaknesses. And when you live in that culture, you don't even realize that it seems normal to you. This is just what it is. If you were in a third world country, and again, not every third world country, but I think you'll recognize the trends here. So what's the price to be paid in a third world country? Well, the price to be paid in a third world country is you bury babies. You bury lots of babies. That family buried a baby, that family buried a baby, that house buried a baby, that house buried a baby, that house buried a baby. I've been in multiple third world cultures. I was in a village one time, I don't even know why I'm sticking this in, my translator knew 75 words of English, I think. And I'm at that village. Uh, the people, uh, I'm there about two hours, and they come, and I can't figure out what the guy is trying to say to me. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what he's saying. But I'm the honored guest, and they knew I was a Christian. And they took me to a house, and it's one of the most powerful movements. I mean, I've had many of them through the years, but they handed me a little box. And I figured it out before they handed the box to me. And it was a child born prematurely. And the parents are back in the back of the room weeping. And the elders of the tribe are all up front and they're weeping. And they want me to say a blessing over a baby that had just died. Probably born two hours ago. 
That's happened to me a lot in different ways. It's nobody's fault to live in that culture. It's just the price you pay. If it happens to your house, you can't say, why? Why'd that happen to me? Because honestly, medical, water, you go through any number of things, food, you bury babies. That's the price to be paid. So what's the price to be paid in a first world country? The price to be paid in a first world country is you live at arm's length from most people, but you call it friendship. That your definition and your style of friendship in a first world country is as abnormal as bearing babies. But we don't know it. Seems normal to us. In fact, one of the most common things that will occur is somebody from a third world country will come and live here and in eight, ten months of living here, there's a good chance they're sitting on my porch or I'm sitting on their porch and they're weeping and they will go, why will no one be our friends? And you say, what do you mean? Everybody loves you. And they will say, everyone is friendly. But we don't have friends. Because the definition they had of friendship is how you have meals together and how you share life and how you do life together. And they come to a first world country and we live in a different type of relationship, but we call it friends. One of the things Christ is going to do with you is redeem your vision and your view of friendship. Whenever you take a look at what God does in the lives of people, if I were to walk you through great biblical heroes, and I would say, take a look at their life, let me, let me, let me mention one of them that you would know from the, from the Old Testament. I need you to tell me who he is here in a second. He was dedicated to God, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he called out to the Lord. There's stories of miracles where water came out of a rock, and he led Israel for many, many years. Who did I just describe for you? Wrong. I set you up. Nope, not Noah. I just described for you Samson. You go, Samson? Samson's a train wreck. Samson's a mess. You're right. Because I want you to go through the entire story of Samson, and I want to find you his close, godly companions. And you won't find them. They don't exist. So you put a Samson here, and you look at the train wreck of a life, and you see the absence of genuine, close community. Let me contrast that with David. If I find David, I find a man whose life is incredibly powerful, and I find that there's a Jonathan that God brought into his life, and the Jonathan that God brought into his life is profound. And Jonathan reshapes David's life. And by the way, Jonathan is not David's soccer bud. They're probably 20 years difference in age. Could be more, 25 years. But Jonathan has a friendship with David that shapes David. It's not only that it's Jonathan as a friend, but you're going to end up with Samuel is in that friendship. You're going to not only find that, but you're going to find that there's 33 mighty men in David's life. And when you find David's life to be a, a train wreck later, it's because all of his mighty men are gone somewhere else. It's because Jonathan's no longer there, and he's imitating Samson at that age, and that's what happens to David. 
But we tend to grow up in a Samson-type world where I come to the Lord and I cry out to the Lord and I ask for God's blessing and, and I interact with people, but I hold them at arm's length and we end up with Samson kind of lives. Individualism is not compatible with the kingdom of God. But we are a culture that tends to build around a sense of individualism. Now, don't misunderstand me. God puts multiple things into our life. You have to be able to be comfortable with solitude. You have to be comfortable in seasons where you will have some loneliness. That's part of the human condition. But you're not designed to live there. We are in a culture that we're masters of short-term relationships. I don't want to play this card too hard, but that's what we are. 150 years ago, you would have gone to first through eighth grade with the same teacher with about the same 30 people, and you had to learn to get along with them. 150 years ago, you shopped at two different stores, and you better get along with them because, because that, that, that's the only two stores to, stop at, to shop at. 100 years ago, you probably had three jobs in your, to four jobs in your lifetime, and you better learn to get along with coworkers. But now, man, it's a... It's a menagerie of options. You don't like that soccer coach, you just go three miles down the road and get another one. You can't stand the kids in your class or don't like them or, or whatever the case may be. Just hang in there because next semester you'll have another one. 150 years ago, you could get your doctorate and have no more than 14 teachers in your entire time. How many teachers have you had in your lifetime? We're masters of short-term relationships. We are an activity-based culture not a relationship-based culture. So we joined together on activities, and we learned how to manage those activities. And so the soccer team, you know, with the people on the bus with you, you're pretty good friends until soccer season's over, but you go back to just an, a natural understanding that we don't hang together. A in fact, this is a little terrible, but we tend to treat people, not intending to, a little bit like we would disposable cups. This cup is helpful to me when, it's, when I need it and then I use it. But when I no longer need it, I don't know, I, 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 I can switch to another one. And, and, and so this is a disco disposable cup. There's a reason they're called solo cups. And that's kind of how we live, and it's normal. Until Christ begins to redeem me and pull me back. Until Christ begins to change the concept of friendship. There are two great dangers of not having good friends. The two great dangers are pretty simple. Number one, we remain unrepaired. Friendships are where God, where God will repair you. And the quality of your friendships will determine the quality of your repair. Dr. David Stevens said this, the story of our transformation is never a story of books or conventions, it's a story of relationships. I've enjoyed immensely speaking to you this weekend, but I promise you the transformation in your life will not be becomes some guy came from Missouri and spoke to us and, and it, it changed my life. I, I, I hope to contribute, I hope to be a voice in it, but I will tell you what actually will change your life are the people who took the journey with and who you share the right. C.S. Lewis, you always sound smarter if you quote C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, anyone who would speak of friendship begins a rehabilitation process. I don't know if you've read Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, but you're not allowed to have another meal until you do so. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life together. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was in Germany. He was back in the 30s. He was killed by the Nazi regime about, what, a week or 10 days before the, uh, World War II was over. Diedrich Bonhoeffer ran an underground seminary for Christians. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, quite a guy. His book, Cost of Discipleship, his, his letters from prison, you, you need to know Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer said one time to his seminary students, they're all going to go into kingdom leadership. He said, and, and this is the 1930s, he said, we, we can teach you and we teach you how to stand in front of somebody and lead. We even teach you how to kneel in front of somebody and serve. But we struggled and can't seem to teach you how to stand beside somebody and befriend and we are unrepaired and there's no one to tell us. I talked about the accomplices at a wedding, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids. The quality and depth of friendship have much, much, much to do with own repair. Many of you would know the name C.S. Lewis and know the name J.R.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis died the same day that President Kennedy got shot. So C.S. Lewis's death didn't draw much front-page coverage. But they introduced J.R. Tolkien, and many of you, would again, would know Lord of the Rings and all of those things. They interviewed Tolkien, and Tolkien had tears running down his cheeks, the interviewer says. And he began to talk about the journey that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and another set of individuals, men and women, took. They called themselves the Inklings. They met for over 30 years. And Tolkien said, we healed one another. The story of my life is the story of Jesus. Don't misunderstand that. And it's the story of Jesus directly. But if I were here, it would be the story of Jesus in you who heals me. And the story of Jesus in you that heals me. And the story of Jesus in you that heals me. And I need you. You can't be a disposable cup to me. Will I always like you? No. Will you always like me? No. Tolkien wrote the very book, Lord of the Rings. And you think it's about slaying dragons or something. He said, no, I write it because it's about friendship. And it's about the partnership. It's the journey. We remain unrepaired if we don't figure out how to do friendship, but the American culture hands us a shallow version of it, and we don't know that's even shallow. There's a second reason, a second great danger, and that is life is too hard without good friends. It's just too stinking hard. I, I, I want to be careful with this because I'm about to lob a grenade that I don't have time to probably articulate well. Do you want to know why there's a spike of anxiety and stress? Do you want to know why most of you, part of your vocabulary has to do with mental health? Part of it's the brokenness of the world, but part of it is you have grown up in an unsupported culture in general. And an unsupported in culture leaves people very vulnerable. There's probably nothing really wrong with your mind. There's probably really nothing wrong with your spirit or soul. The isolation of our culture feeds it. 
And good friends, good friends double the joy in our life and good friends half the pain. You can almost count on it. Good friends will double the joy. You send me to, I don't even know why I would say this, Disney World, please don't. <laughs> but you send me to Disney World by myself and I will enjoy it. I, in spite of my curmudgeon I will enjoy it, but you let my wife go with me, by the way, and I'm speaking in terms of friendship here, and it is twice the fun. Friendship doubles the joy, and it halves the pain. You need a handful of skills in life. You don't need a ton of skills in life. You really don't. You need to learn how to eat peas with a spoon. You, you, you need to learn how to ride a bicycle, and you need to learn in every situation and every place you ever are I know how to begin to create good friends wherever I am. But I am going to tell you that the lack of friendships in your life are not primarily because people looked at you and said, I don't want to be your friend. The lack of friendships in your life ver have very little to do with you. It has to do with the culture is going this way, and you think it's about you that nobody wants to be your friend. Not really. And all I want to tell you is no, it's, it impacts you, affects you, but it's probably not about you. It's the price you pay for living in this culture. And you're going to have to be like a salmon that swims upstream. I've got to go the other direction, and I have to do things differently, and I have to attack this differently, and I have to have a certain optimism of the kingdom that God will meet me and help me create I want you guys to be insurrectionists. I want you to be rebels. I don't want you caving into the cultural flow. I want you insurrectionists who create fellowship and friendship in an entirely different way. How do you do that? This, by the way, should be a long series. It's not. How? Here's an irony. You don't get friends by starting out looking for friends. Well, that seems paradoxical, but you don't. C.S. Lewis, especially, who, who, who I'll talk about, he says friendships start by you living out your life for the reasons and purposes God put within you. You have to begin to live your life for the vision on the horizon. You choose a road that I want to serve the Lord, I want to set the, 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 the captives free, I want to walk with Jesus, and you choose how to begin to invest your life in the kingdom of God. And as you are on that road, you begin to discover the gracious gift beside you, which can be discovered, which is friendships. C.S. Lewis says the opening line of most great friendships are this. What? You too? You see the same thing? And from that, that's how the old man and the young man across the street start to become dear friends because both of them are living out their purposes and they both care for the neighborhood and they have a conversation and the young man turns to the old man and said, what, you see the same thing? That's how friendships tend to be. Friendships have to be about something. This is C.S. Lewis again, and I, I, a little tongue-in-cheek here. Lovers may find each other face-to-face, -face, but friends discover each other shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. And so live out your purposes, but be looking left and right on the journey because the gracious gift you can find on that will be friendships. Friendships have to be about something. This is quoting C.S. Do not throw something at me. 
This is C.S. Lewis's exact lines. That's why those pathetic people who only want friends can never make any. Because they're going nowhere. And friendships have to go somewhere or they have no fellow travelers. A friendship must be about something. Some of you in this room are hurting yourself because you're just running from group to group, just running person to person trying to find a friend. You're going to end up frustrating yourself and everyone else. There's the song of Jesus you're going to have to start living out that involves a courage, and you're going to have to begin to live the purposes, and you can't just go hunt for a friend. But as you live out the purposes of Jesus, he will never abandon you. There will be people that you meet on that journey. How do you do it? Live out your purposes and look around you. Number two, this is from Bonhoeffer. There will be the hand of God in this. All friendships have a bit of a divine partnership, a divine moment. You'd be a person who's praying about friendships. I've joked before that if I went to the guy's dorm and could somehow collect all the prayers, I would get an awful lot of girlfriend prayers. If I went to the girl's dorm and I collected all the prayers, I'd probably get a, hey, there's this guy, you know, kind of a lot of prayers. But how many prayers would I pick up from a, a bucket of just, I've been praying about deep, good friendships? That's part of it. You have to go look. The, I'm going to give you five things. They won't take long. If I just took you to the book of Proverbs, here are five things you're looking for in friendships. Here's five things you have to be to be a good friend. The first, I'm going to, I have no idea why I'm going to go ahead and make them all start with C. Uh, nobody will care, but they'll all start with C. I almost never do that. In fact, in sermons, they sound phony to me, so I deliberately change a letter sometimes, but. The first thing you're looking for is contagiousness. That's not a COVID comment. You're looking for contagiousness. Write down Proverbs 13.20. Contagiousness. Proverbs 13.20. Walk with the wise and become wise, for the companions of fools suffer harm. You need to know that friendships at any level are always contagious. By their very nature, you're affected and shaped. So if you tend to run with shallow individuals, I can pretty well guess what's going to happen in your life. You tend to run with loving individuals. I can pretty well guess. You run with wise individuals. I can pretty well guess. And so the first thing you're doing is you're looking for friendships that have wisdom because there's the contagiousness. I'm not asking you to reject people in your life. The kingdom never invites me to reject people. But the kingdom works this way. And again, I don't know how well you can even see this. Again, you guys are really shocked. I never had any art uh, classes. Friendships operate much like a bullseye. There is no one I don't want you to be befriending and being kind to. The kingdom treats everybody with worth and value and dignity. But there are people that are wise and deep that you want here. 
They're individuals you'll befriend, but this right here, it has to be on the outer circle because there's a vulnerability. There is a contagiousness. There's something, and, and I care for you, and I will root for you, and I will pray for you, and I'll befriend you, but there's a level of friendship that has to match the wisdom the person has. And what happens is you begin to move people and you discover people and begin to move, but there's a handful of small godly friends that have to know everything about you. Now that circle will not be permanent your whole life. There may be a few people permanent in that, but for the most part it's seasons where you have, but you always have to have a season that I'm creating a small handful of godly friends who know everything about you. Much of my life, and I'm changing this metaphor just a little bit. I'm going to stick with the bullseye, but stay with me. In my early years as a young man, here's what I did. I lived with acquaintances. I had lots of acquaintances. I, I've, I've spent all of my life within 30, 40 miles of where I was raised. I have lots of acquaintances. In fact, if I just were to play with this, I probably have 7,000 acquaintances. That isn't hard for me to come up with. Um, my local high school I went to, I, the church I preached at, I probably have 700 friends. That's not hard. I did the wedding for their daughter. I, 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 they were in my small group or something. I probably even have 70 friends. The 12 guys that were on staff with me, the 17 elders and their wives, uh, people who just, uh, they could be pallbearers at my funeral and nobody would think twice about it because those are, those are good friends of Randy's. And I lived here for much of my life. And Christ convicted me about unpacking my own box. And so in my early 30s, I had to decide there's a contagiousness and there's a small handful that every single day, you need to know part of my rhythm of life is every single day, there's four or five or six guys that I'm going to check on, not all of them that day, but I'm going to check every single day. I need to invest a little bit in that small handful. Friday morning before I came and gathered you, there's eight guys that we have shared so much life together and we meet every two weeks for breakfast and we tell stories and we're old men who do all kinds of stupid things but one of the things that we have as a ground rule is we're going to make each other better somewhere in today's conversation and we're going to pick up and follow up. I have, I have got these six guys. Actually, it's eight but six were able to make it Friday morning. That's the group that knows me. They're the group that it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I don't know who to call. I know who to call. That's the group that could walk in my house and open up the refrigerator and get something out, and it would be the most natural thing in the world. These, I might get the gun out. <laughs> most of you tend to create your circles based off activities, but we don't know what to do beyond that. My phone call, I mentioned his name yesterday, I didn't tell you a lot. His name was Gary Riker. His name is Gary Riker. He's my age. Gary is not my personality. Gary was also a fellow freshman with me in college. I was actually rooming with somebody else. Gary was down the hall. Gary is very different from me, but I began to notice that Gary had a, 
a, a kindness that the circles I ran in just weren't as o overtly kind as Gary. And I began to notice that Gary just had a, a breadth of emotions that I didn't seem, I, 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 th I thought that I don't have those. And he didn't have them with drama. He seemed to have them with, in my sophomore year, I got a hold of Gary and said, Gary, it's one of the biggest risks I ever took. Gary, you got a roommate for next year? And Gary Riker and I roomed together. And Gary Riker changed my life. Gary and I have talked probably every either three weeks to sometimes two months for 50 years. Gary can't be exactly there because he lives in Dallas, Texas. Gary was here, but he spent all the rest of his life right here. I drove to Dallas two weeks ago because his wife died. And I went to the service of Gary. And a sophomore and high school boy who changed my life, we just stood there and held each other. Contagiousness. Choose the wise. Choose the best friends you can afford. Okay. The second one is consistency. You need contagiousness, consistency. Look at Proverbs 17, 17. It's going to tell you that a friend loves at all times. It doesn't mean you're always together. No, you're not always together. In fact, that's controlling. Some of you, honestly, uh, you don't understand. That's not a real good friendship. You're too controlling. It doesn't mean you spend all your time together, but it means a friend loves in all kinds of times. You love in happy times and sad times and, and discouraging times and victorious times and play times and work times. You really don't have a good friendship and so the, ver the variety of times in your life. And so you have to be intentional that this is somebody I admire, this is somebody I think has great wisdom, and I'm going to try to be consistent at some level of, of times. Here's why, is you have to learn to love. Love must be learned over and over and over again and learned again. There's no end to the learning of love, and so in all kinds of times, hate or, or apathy, it needs no training, it needs no instruction, it need, only needs provoked, but consistency. Number three is carefulness carefulness. Proverbs 26 verses 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands and arrows and death. That's quite a picture. Like a madman who throws firebrands and arrow and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and then says, I was only kidding. What's it mean? Emotional insensitivity. Emotional insensitivity. Proverbs 26 is what is that verse. Some of you are trying to figure out what it was. Proverbs 26, 18 through 19. Emotional insensitivity. There are people just too immature to understand what it's like to be another human being. Guys, stop some of the silly sarcasm. You tend to use sarcasm, and there's a place for it, but you have lived it so much that you've actually instructed people not to be a close friend with you. Some of you don't know how to have honest conversations with vulnerability. And you hide behind jokes and you hide behind shallowness and it's an emotional insensitivity. So when you're choosing friends and when you're going to be a friend, I told last night, this is not fair, I'm, I'm going to stick it into you. Uh, I was talking to your leaders. They asked me a question and they were stuck with a 20-minute answer. One of the first things you're learning when you begin to find your voice as a young adult 
is you learn to be critical. I'm not, that doesn't bother me. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. You're finding your voice. You're moving from the kid in the back seat. You're begin and so being critical is just pretty judgy. That's, that's one of the besetting weaknesses of being your age. But it's okay. But you're supposed to grow out of it. But if you hang around at that opinionated, I like my opinions a lot, and I like being judgy, I like being able to point out how that wasn't as good as it could have been, what amounts to is you're showing emotional insensitivity. You, you, you need to grow up. You've got to learn to be grateful. You've got to learn to have encouragement. You've got to learn to have, and, but emotional insensitivity is a huge deal. Number four is candor. Number four is candor. I know it's not a word you guys normally use, so probably I should do something else. But Proverbs 27, 6, powerful verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Whoa, what? Friendly wounds and wounding kisses. If, you, if you're going to choose your friends, you have to choose people who have emotional sensitivity but people who love you enough to tell you things you may not want to hear. I'll never forget, Rick, Rick Bushnell's in this circle for me. Rick and I worked together for 33 years. I'll never forget, I was in my early 30s, and we finished a staff meeting, and Rick said, hey, Randy, can we go for a walk? And Rick's a very gentle man. I'm going, sure, Rick. And he was going for a walk. He said, Randy, there's so many things that I admire in your life, but Randy, do you know you have a pattern? Do you know you, and he took something that I had been talking about in a staff meeting, and he just, he was a guy who loved me. He was a guy that I knew was wise, and, and, and he said, Randy, it's just, it, it, it's just, it doesn't look good on you, and it hurts people. I fired him. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's a joke. You have to have, my, my wife has many, many times sat down with me, I'll, remember, I'll never forget one of them. One of them's in a bank parking lot. And she said, Randy, do you mind pulling over? Thought she wanted to make out. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <sighs> and she turned to me and she said, Randy, you're too good a man. You're too good a man to let this stay in your life. Randy, you... You, you, you let this slide, and, and you're too good a man. My wife loved me enough to have candor. For what it's worth, by the way, just take Ephesians 4. I, I can't give this to you, but Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, tell you whenever you say something hard to somebody, you tell them the truth, you protect their dignity, and you better say it with humility. Those are the three things. And if you ever separate those, it's no longer godly speech. Now it's just opinionated stuff. And so verse 25, Ephesians 4, speak the truth. Verse 29, protect their dignity. Put their dignity up high, and there better be humility. The fifth thing, the fifth thing I have to explain a little bit. Turn to Proverbs 27, 29. Proverbs 27, 29. Or Proverbs 27, 9. I don't know who I said this. Proverbs 27, 9.
most of the time your English Bible, I promise you, it communicates entirely right. Every now and then you can get a little bit of going, I'm not sure if that's the best way to say that. The fifth one is counsel. Counsel. But I'm going to give you an addendum. I don't want you to just leave the word counsel here in a second. We've been talking about contagiousness of what you want, consistency, carefulness, candor, and counsel. Proverbs 27, 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt counsel. Some of your Bibles may say advice. That's actually not what the Hebrew is saying. The Hebrew word means to open your chest. So yes, it's someone who gives me counsel and someone who gives me advice, but they give me transparency as they're doing it. Someone who opened their chest. So the word counsel slash transparency, I think, is probably even better. If you can't bring people into your life who are transparent, then you don't, they, they, they can't fit in this tightest circle. The sequence of friendship will change your life. Here's what I know. You have to be the fish that swims upstream, that stops getting your feelings hurt every two seconds because people won't befriend me well enough. That's the besetting weakness of our culture that Christ is redeeming us from. Be like a nurse walking into a hospital and going, I'm sick of sick people. You're going to live in a culture that relationships are not well. And these kids who love Jesus and love you, they're not skilled at it either. So you get to be an insurrectionist who gently works. I hope that makes some sense. Let me finish so you guys can go home. So let's talk about dating for a second. Band, you can come on because I... I won't take a long time on this. There are five seasons that I believe you need to go to. Five seasons before you go to a marriage. And by the way, I don't think marriage, by the way, you become a whole person. You, I promise you, you will survive and thrive in life whether you're married or not. Okay? I, I want that clear. You can want a marriage and family, but you won't have to have it to survive. The five seasons are pretty simple. There's a season that you just have to chase after your own wholeness and your own wisdom, and you learn to live in community with people, not a people, people. I learned to live with myself. There has to be a season of personal wholeness. You just chase after it. But when you begin to believe you make progress on that and believe that you're actually figuring out how to love somebody and you're beginning to get stabilized in your own life, there's a season of I'm going to call it just building friendship with a person. A, co a season of friendship. If you found a guy that you want to know more about or a guy that intrigues you, do not jump into immediate dating. No, you go through a season that you build the friendship. The third season, I'm going to come back to this one in a second. The third season is early dating. That's exclusive dating. We're not dating anybody else. Early dating. The fourth season is late dating. You go, where's middle dating? There isn't any. 
uh, is early dating and late dating. Late dating is where you do the hard work of everything you're going to get done, where you figure out the two of us actually, we, we, we figured out we want to take a journey together, and our lives are better together than they are separate. The fifth season is engagement. Engagement probably should be fairly short. It's not very complex because you've done all the hard work at late dating. Basically, it, 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 it engagement, you're just kind of handling the logistics, putting it together, you're putting your families together, and you're putting your finances together. But if you're going to go sail off in the wide blue sea, don't hang around the dock a long time, okay? So keep your engagement shorter. And then marriage. So let's go back to this one. As Americans, we skip the first two. We don't really build wholeness. We just jump into dating. And we end up dating people that are not whole, and we're not whole. As Americans, we must all think we're prophets, like Old Testament prophets. You met a girl this weekend. She was nice to talk to. You knew her before a little bit, and you're dating by Tuesday night. What in the world? You're prophetic. What do you think you have? No. I want you to take, and I know I'm not trying to be legalistic with this, but I want to tell you, take two or three months and build the friendship. Friendship is the DNA of all great relationships. Don't start an exclusive dating relationship till you can say we have a, an incredible friendship. You skip the incredible friendship, you're going to basically walk into an environment that's designed for failure. My wife and I were friends from August to January, and I was blown away who this woman was and I discovered that our friendship had something that had a snap crackle pop and I was actually even falling in love with my friend no doubt about it but friendship was the basis and then I knew this is the woman I would like to to move into a dating relationship and so early dating late dating and so forth do you ever watch a child um, in the floor, putting t- together the blocks, the big block and the next block that's smaller. Does it frustrate you when the child puts the little block on the bottom and tries to build off of it? Me too. Stop it! <laughs> because the big block is friendship. The big block is friendship. Be patient. Old men need to tell young adults, be more patient. Invest in the friendship. And that means that Sarah can go with you for a cup of coffee on Tuesday and you say, I, I really admire who you are and I really appreciate. And, and when we were together at that retreat, it was a blast. I would love to invest in a friendship with you. And somebody goes, oh, no, the friendship word. No. The friendship word's the right word. And you skip that and I promise you, you have set a trap for yourself. The five stages, work on wholeness, work on friendship, begin to fall in love with this friend. It's perfectly fine, but this is my friend. And then somewhere you know each other well enough that that friendship will reveal to both of you, we think we'd like to take this further to an exclusive dating relationship. Stay there longer. There's guys in this room that you had two conversations with a girl, and she said, you know, I just think we ought to remain friends, and you felt shot down and quit. What a coward. (laughs) Hang in there, boy. (laughs) But the target is not early dating. The target is friendship. The relationship will tell you what follows. A good friendship is the basis. 
been married to Julie for 47 years. Love her. I said it the other night. We've been married long enough. That's all I know. But if you want to know, it's the friendship that is the basis of everything. I wish you the best, gang. You get to live a grand adventure. Live it better than my generation did. Be insurrectionists and turn this crazy, broken world upside down. And you get it by hanging on to Jesus and hanging on to one another. And you figure it out. God bless. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.